0: And welcome this evening. For those who weren't present on Saturday, the first day-long sitting that we had up in the land at Spirit Rock was really wonderful. Uh, I guess about 250 or, or so people came and it was in a big tent that we got from Wavy Gravy in the hog farm who helped set it up for us. And uh, Mostly what was nice about it, to me we did a bit of a ceremony and it wasn't quite as silent as a usual retreat, but there was a lovely spirit and a, and a very peaceful feeling through the day. And it was just wonderful to sit out in the woods on that land, to smell the leaves from the bay trees and take a walk around the valley there. And It was quite terrific. And I hope that even before we build a building that we might buy a tent like that with sides and just be able to start using the land on a regular basis for various kinds of gatherings. So tonight I'd like to talk for a while. For those of you who've been coming in some regular way, our topics kind of vary between quite traditional Buddhist uh, Dharma talks on the Factors of Enlightenment and the Foundations of Mindfulness, to talks on relating practice to our daily life or relationships or social action. Tonight I want to talk a bit about questioning and spiritual practice. I was at the post office in Woodacre today, and they were interviewing people in front of the post office as they do every week for the Point Reyes Light for the the column on, they make up some question or other and then just interview people in West Marin. And the question that uh, was being asked was uh, what we thought about the new law proposed that all divorces end with, with children and uh, with joint custody unless there's some exceptional circumstances. Um, and I gave whatever answer I had. Mostly I talked about how more than what kind of custody it was, that it was more important that parents be responsible and responsive to the difficulties of their children at that time. I'd seen some parents in my therapy practice who were going to get divorced and they said, well, you know, we'll get houses near one another and the kids can go back and forth and it'll be fine for them. And I shook my head and I said, it's not going to be fine for them. I mean, it may work out okay for them but it'll be very painful. And there really isn't any way that it'll happen that it won't be some kind of suffering and something to struggle with. And not to fool ourselves about that. It's one of those hard kind of questions whether there should be joint custody or children should stay more with one parent or another, whether there should even be a law about it, that there isn't a simple answer to. There's no answer that you can say, Everyone do this and then the difficulty or the pain or the grief or the loss won't be there. And what matters, at least how it's taught traditionally and as I understand it in practice, in our actions, is that the test for ourselves is what is our own motivation? What state is our heart in when we make that decision? Is there concern or kindness or is there desire to get back at somebody or judgment? And the place in the heart that motivates our action is what creates the fruit of that action. That's the seed out of which what comes will be born. The teachings of the Dharma are not pat answers. This is what you do in this circumstance, and that's what you do in that circumstance. It would be great if somebody had such answers, but I haven't seen them anywhere. They ask us rather to bring a listening to our heart, to our intention, to our motivation, to our life. And who knows about joint custody or single custody? I don't know. Does anybody really know? Maybe it has to be in each situation rather than some general rule, again, the people involved listening inside. Today's the 100th birthday of T.S. Eliot. I just learned that on the way here, so I would have done a whole talk on him, but I might do that next week instead in Dharma. But I have a few of his poems. This is the, the last part of uh, Ash Wednesday, where he says, Blessed Sister, Holy Mother, Spirit of the Fountain, Spirit of the Garden, suffer us not to mock ourselves with falsehood. Teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to sit still, even among these rocks. And even among these rocks, Sister, Mother, Spirit of the River, Spirit of the Sea, suffer us not to be separated. Wonderful poetry. Suffer us not to mock ourselves with falsehood or be caught up falsely, but to listen to some truth in ourselves. Teach us to care and not to care. In an amazing line. All a spiritual practice in some way that. And teach us to sit still even among these rocks. Remember the story of the Buddha where the man who wanted to know how he should live, came and asked the Buddha, what happens when you die? I've told this many times. And the Buddha didn't answer. He instead asked him some questions back. Well, if you have many lives, how would you want to live? And the man said, I'd want to be kind and I'd want to be aware because it would lead to people being kind back in future lives into greater wisdom. And then the Buddha said, suppose this is your only life. How would you live then? And the man said, Well, I guess I'd want to be kind because it's the only time I'd have to express my love and appreciation and to be aware because it's the only dance I would have. And he gave the same answer, and the Buddha never responded to what happens when you die. The Buddha's enlightenment and his own awakening solved his problem but it didn't really solve yours or mine. It doesn't. And some teachers that one studies with in Buddhist tradition regard belief in rebirth and one life after another as essential. You really have to understand that this is a long process and what you do will create the future for a long time. Other teachers say that in the essence there is no self, no sense of separateness. Therefore, no one dies. No one's born. And the real enlightenment is one moment after another. It's not some future life, but it's living awake and free in this day, in this moment. Who's right in that? Someone told me that two weeks ago when my friend Guy Armstrong gave his Dharma talk here, that people asked a lot of questions. He gave a talk on fear. I know he's a good teacher. I've heard him many times. And then when I came last week, they said they were surprised because I gave a talk and invited discussion or questions. Nobody asked questions. And they said, well, maybe they're afraid of you. You know? (laughs) And then there's this vision committee that's meeting for Spirit Rock, and I heard somewhat the same thing, that when I'm not there, people make a lot of trouble and ask a lot of questions. and It's very kind of creative. And then when I'm there, people are kind of quiet and they listen, maybe make me a little paranoid. But anyway, perhaps it's because I'm a good debater or something like that. You know, I have a good way with words, probably better than that debate last night anyway. But... But it's interesting to think about our own questioning, your questioning in relation to the practice or the teachings or Buddhism or spiritual life. And we certainly have gotten ourselves in trouble as a race by our blind belief, by our belief in spiritual things, whether it's the Crusades or the Inquisitions or every other kind of spiritual mishap from large ones to small ones ancient and contemporary. There are really some big questions that we are required to face if we do a genuine spiritual practice. I'm not saying we're required to answer them, but we're certainly required to ask and to look. In Buddhism, it's taught in so many ways. The the expression of Dharma, it varies. There are certain teachers who emphasize defilement, that there is in human nature, a great deal of greed and hatred and delusion. And that what we need to do is somehow purify ourselves and clean ourselves and, and remove ourselves in some way from this world. It's like St. John of the Cross says, The soul cannot be possessed of the divine union until it has divested itself of the love for created beings. This is St. John. You've got to leave the world and all of it behind to touch the divine. That's one way. You know, you, you purify and you get rid of your greed and you overcome your fear through a lot of effort. Then there's a whole other expression that says that our true nature is our Buddha nature. And that all we have to do is stay with what's present here without getting caught up in our ambition and our wishing to change it and our ideas, but come to rest in the truth of the present and beauty comes out of us. It's only because of our ambition that we get confused at all. Which of those is right? Does the second group underestimate the power of delusion and evil? Or is the first group too caught up in that and not see the the beauty that underlies it. There are different kinds of doubt in spiritual practice. There's the small doubt, little doubts, the doubt of the hindrances. It's too hard. My knees hurt too much. My mind wanders. I can't do it. Everybody else can meditate. They're all sitting quietly in here but me. I'm the one who can. I'm having a hard time. It's the wrong year. I'm too young to do it. I should accomplish something first. I'm too old. I should have started when I was young. You know? It's the wrong day. It's the wrong costume or whatever. Do you know that kind of doubting mind? Or there's something in me that's too hard to deal with now. I should put it off. And for that kind of mind, all that's asked, really, is that you give it a try. Not that you believe it blindly, but that you take some practice or some way of awakening. And even though the doubting mind will come, it comes for everyone, you continue to see what's true. And that leads you to the second kind of doubting or questioning, which is much more fruitful, called the great doubt or the... The quality, the factor of enlightenment, of inquiry into the truth. This is what awakens people. To look into our life, to look in, to see into our hearts, to look at the roots of fear. What makes us so afraid? To look at the roots of our addiction, to look at the roots of our suffering, and also to look at the roots of our love to see what creates love, what makes it possible to live freely. And the process of practice is one of questioning, who am I, how does this life work? It's a very radical thing, and the Buddha was a radical in his time. There were all these Vedic teachers and Brahmin priests, and the Buddha said, it's not by being a priest that you're going to get anywhere in this spiritual life. It doesn't matter whether you were born lower caste or upper caste or untouchable. It's irrelevant. What matters solely is your heart and your willingness to look into the truth of things and to live that truth which you see. It was a very radical thing at that time. He said, forget the values of living in a fancy house in the city. Come join me in the forest. I mean, Jesus was a radical in much the same way. There's a process in spiritual practice. It begins perhaps with some small doubts. I can't do it. It's too hard. I don't even know if it's the right thing. A good friend of mine, Ajahn Sumedo, who's an abbot of number of monasteries in England, and a a Western monk, and a, a long-time colleague. He became a monk in 1966 in Thailand, or 65, and I met him around 1966 or 67. He'd only been a monk for a year, and he didn't have a very good teacher at that time. He had a little bit of instruction and meditation, and he went in a hut and tried to kind of do it on his own for most of a year. And then he went to live in this temple, an old Cambodian temple at the top of a mountain that you had to walk up about two or three thousand steps to get to the top of this. And he was there with a couple of other monks living and every day they'd walk down the mountain, go to the village to get food to eat in the morning in their begging bowl. And then he got very sick. He got either was malaria or dysentery, typhoid, one of the things that you get sometimes when you're living over there in the forest. And he was living in this hut at the bottom of the mountain because he couldn't walk. He was just lying there, and it was the hot season, and the hut had a tin roof on the top, and it was an oven. And the hot season there anyway is very, very hot. It was just terrible. And he was throwing up and, you know, diarrhea and all those pleasant things of, a human body when it's not working right and sweating, and he kept thinking, maybe I should go back to Berkeley. You know, maybe this is—what am I doing here? This is too hard. Here I'm in this weird country, and they're feeding me this food I'm not used to, and my body's falling apart. But he also had a lot of deep wisdom and a kind of natural spiritual understanding, and he'd studied. He had a master's from Berkeley in Hindi and Indic studies, and he'd been in the Peace Corps. He was married and divorced. He'd been in the Navy. He'd been around quite a bit. And he knew there was something more than all that he'd done that he wanted to find. And one day, he said, he was lying in that hut and suffering terribly, and really terrible suffering. And he realized that you know what the most suffering was from? It wasn't the heat, and it wasn't the crap, and it wasn't the throwing up, and it wasn't the terrible food. It was his mind, the doubts. And he said, I'm not going to do it anymore. I quit. I'm just going to, if I'm here, I'm here. That was 20-some years ago, and he's become, the, as far as I can tell, the most successful and certainly one of the wisest and most respected Western teachers and abbots ever to have gone to Asia to train in all of the different Buddhist traditions. He's a wonderful teacher. And he said he's had other kinds of doubts since that day, but he really learned something in that day. That's the beginning of working with doubt. That's the little doubts. It's too hard. I can't do it. And then you take some discipline, or some practice, or some way, and you work with it to inquire, to go deeper, to, to develop awareness, to understand. And you begin to discover things, the laws of the mind and the heart. And at some point, you even think you know something, which is a very dangerous place in practice. Because you do, you can know a few things. Not very many as they go, but a few of them. And you keep questioning, and you go deeper. And you know a few more things, but you realize that some of what you knew before was kind of shallow. And you start to see that there's this process of going deeper, of asking, of looking, that requires a deeper letting go each step of the way. And finally, you come to a level of what one Zen master called don't know mind, of learning that to live free or to live truly isn't so much having ideas, but living in the reality of the moment is to not know so much to be here and listen to what's present, rather than have our ideas about it. Again from T.S. Eliot, you say I am repeating something I've said before. I shall say it again. In order to arrive where you are, in order to arrive at what you do not know, you must go by a way which is the way of ignorance. And what you do not know is the only thing you know. And what you own is not what you own. And where you are is where you are not. To discover in some deep way is to start by saying, I don't know. What is consciousness? Or what is love? Or what is liberation? Or how can a human being live fully or wisely? I don't know, but I want to find out. I will look. Maybe all we need to know is quite simple, as we've said at other times in this class. There's the old Indian fable of the man who dies and he leaves his two sons a small, beautiful pouch within which are two rings. One is a beautiful, large diamond, and the eldest son says, I want it, I'm the eldest, I get to keep it. And the other is a simple silver ring, but inside the silver ring is inscribed a motto, this too shall pass. And the son who takes the second ring, the wiser son, puts it on his finger and somehow begins to live the truth of that. And The one who has the diamond tries to borrow on it and parlay it and leverage it, you know how it goes, even in old India, and make get more diamonds and more things, you know, and more trouble, naturally, with all of that. And the one who has the ring and lives that one truth, this too shall pass. That one simple understanding with the seasons, with the birth and growth and maturing and leaving home of his children with the aging of his body, with the changing of the society around, who understands that, lives in some peace. Now, one can take a certain faith, we could, a, a, a genuine inspiration from the fact that all great human cultures include some spiritual journey. Ancient India and ancient China and ancient Mayan culture in South America ancient Egypt, all of those, the Taoists, the Hindus, have within them this wonderful journey of human beings that's possible in every time to go from confusion in the mundane and find something in the heart that connects us with the timeless, with the divine. But one could also ask, if that was so great why is there so much trouble in Burma or Thailand or Japan or whatever Tibet or some place that had that ancient wisdom if it's so good why hasn't it worked in some of those societies in some measure or what would create a sane world or could one even be created Now, I have my own questions in in my practice. I started practice in some way very early. I became a skeptic, if you will. I grew up in a scientific and intellectual family, and my father was a physiologist who taught in some medical schools and did research. He designed some of the earliest artificial hearts and artificial lungs. That was on the workbench in our basement, He'd go down and he would be tinkering on an artificial heart that he was designing, things like that. Um, and he worked with a lot of very bright people. And one of the things that became clear, you know how kids can see things a little clearly than anybody, more clearly than anyone else, was that although there were some people that I met, himself included, who were very intelligent, a lot of them were miserable. Or they weren't at all happy or wise in their family life or in their their life with the community around them or the world. And that intelligence and science and all that success didn't necessarily have much to do with the satisfaction of the heart or wisdom. They were really very different. So I became kind of skeptical, as any good teenager would become, probably even earlier than that. And so I went to went to college, studied Chinese language, Buddhist philosophy, took my appropriate number of LSD trips, you know, it was in the mid-early 60s, or whatever, and tried to figure things out, look for something else besides science. And then I went to Asia, drawn by those philosophies, thinking there must be something else. And it was... First of all, interesting to discover that even in all the monasteries of Asia, Burma and Thailand and Japan and so forth, that it's only a small minority of them where people practice. Out of 10,000 monasteries, maybe 5 or 10% of them do the monks and nuns really meditate and do it. The rest are kind of priests or they they do ceremonies or they study the old texts and talk about what it must have been like in the old days to practice meditation. But they don't do it. Fortunately, there were a few good places. There are. There are a few hundred good monasteries left out of 10,000 or 20,000, something like that. And there were some good teachers to find. So I said, all right, I'll try it. This seems worthwhile. And I was not that good a yogi. I wasn't so bad. I'm kind of a mediocre yogi as they go this is true but I I really wanted to do it so I put a lot of effort and I stayed some years and they said do this and I said all right I'll try it you know sit there and don't do anything but sit and walk for a month and don't speak to anybody and pay attention in this way and see what happens and I did and for a lot of it it was very painful and I certainly had my share of every hindrance you can imagine Um, and then interesting things started to happen after, a, after the first year I kind of quieted down a little bit and I had a few interesting experiences and basically I learned to live a lot more simply in the forest with the rhythms of the moon and the, the sunset and sunrise and, and the, the animals of the forest and it was wonderful. I did more intensive meditation. I sat in the charnel grounds and meditated on death and after a while this strange thing happened and I really saw what it was like to die in some deep way and I had these visions come of my body falling apart and wasn't just made up it was very very deep something that came out of doing all those meditations and watch my body fall apart and I started to make some peace with aging and death I hope it works actually (laughs) so far so good You know, and I sat more and I did more and it got very intense and I got to where with a lot of concentration I could dissolve my body into light for a certain time when I was really concentrated or feel everything is just vibrations. The body wasn't there and there wasn't any separate people. There was just this whole field of energy and there is no separateness and it was really clear. All these kind of things that, you know, they write about in the old texts and... Kundalini things happened different. Chakras opened, lights and temples appeared, and flowers came out of my head, and all this. And it it happens. Really, if you do it enough, and you do it in the right way, those things really happen. And I became very pleased with myself, as you can imagine. I go back, and I look and say, it really happened the way it was supposed to. But I still would question, how much are those experiences necessary for people? I mean, I came back and I went to graduate school in psychology because there were a lot of parts of me that were untouched by those experiences, and I still had trouble with relationships with women. probably have that for the rest of my life, but, you know, and intimacy, and, and questions about grieving and fear of other kinds. I I'm probably easier to die than to face some other kinds of fears, quite genuinely, you know? And so I tried to understand those things. And it's interesting. Some teachers and some schools hold very strongly to those powerful experiences of getting concentrated and dissolving yourself and going, getting the body and mind to absolutely cease and disappear and all these kinds of things. And they're very compelling when they happen. Other teachers, though, and some that I know that I respect equally, wonderfully, put all their emphasis on just developing a wise and loving heart and not making any experience a big deal. Because even if you have some marvel experience, marvelous experience, guess what? It goes away, and there you are back again. And I'll turn it back the other way. Is kindness enough? Is that all that spiritual life is about, is just to learn to be kinder to everyone? And it's a wonderful thing to do and, and not a small task. Is it? You know. But is that all? Is that it? Or is there some deeper question we can ask? Who am I? You know? What is this that was born? Will I die, as Stephen Levine's book says? Who dies? Who's born? Do I exist separately? What is the nature of this? And this is the kind of questioning that people have looked into for millennia as a spiritual journey. Now, what would it take each of us to answer these questions? Is kindness the key? Or is discipline and deep stillness the the key? What would it take for you to find out so it's not someone else's answer. So it's not mine or the Buddha's or some other Lama or Swami or Mama or Mommy or whatever, you know. <laughs> that it really was your own. What would it take for you? Would it take a, a deep reflection in your life and questioning? Or a committed spiritual practice that you really developed in your daily life? or going off for a while to a long retreat, you probably know better for yourself than I would. And I have my own questions, as I said. Not so much doubts. I know that we're interconnected. And in some way, we'll see how it works out, but I don't fear death the way that I used to. I've touched some other place, which anybody can, that is timeless, that sees the dance as the dance and doesn't it's not so personal. There's some very deep freedom of heart and being that's possible for anybody to find. But there are other kinds of questions. For example, I believe that many of the great paths are expressions of the same truth and lead people to freedom. The Christian teachings, the Sufi, the Jewish mystical teachings. But I don't know if it's true. I believe that. I'd like that that were so. But maybe it's not. Maybe they actually lead to different places. And I'm misguiding people when I say that. Or myself. I really don't know. You know. I've learned to watch my mind. I can watch fear. I'm pretty good with fear. I've learned more recently to watch anger. It was a long process. First it took not judging it so much and making friends with it. Now I can even see it when it comes, say, oh, look at that. You know, But... Then I wonder, that took me so long. How about greed? I'm not even sure I'm a desire, greed type. That seems more subtle. I don't even know if I've begun that one. I still get lost in my practice when I eat or when I drive or do mundane things often. I just kind of space out or think about just like everybody does. You know. And I don't judge it particularly. I don't make a big deal of it or have a hard time. But I wonder sometimes... Is there some other way? What would make a difference so that I would awaken in those parts of my life as well? I don't know. More effort, more sincerity. You know, less effort. Less. I live a beautiful middle-class life. Here I was a monk in Asia, doing a very hip thing, you know, going off and being a monk and studying in India and doing all these things. And now, I have a beautiful wife and a beautiful daughter and live in a lovely home in Woodacre, you know. It's called the Upper Middle Path. (laughs) (laughs) And there's a really deep question that it raises. Can I do this and not find myself falling asleep? Can I do it and and not lose the sense of growth and, and somehow not end up doing it and stagnating in it in a deep way? You know? And it's not a simple question, because it's not like I'm troubled by fears. I have, I have my difficulties and so forth, but my practice helps me a lot in that. But they're the really deep ones. Is that the best way to awaken for myself, for my family, for the world? Every time I drive my car around, we have two cars, because we live a little in the country, and we use that oil for the car. What does that do to the ecology of the world, to the warming effect, to the Persian Gulf? Every time I fly on an airplane to go and give a retreat somewhere and stay in a nice hotel, because of 20 years of schlepping around, I think, well, I should stay in a nice hotel or something like that. (laughs) But what is that, using all that money and all those resources, when there are a lot of very, very great problems of poverty. What's my relationship to that, living a certain way and that in the world? Do you know what I'm asking? I and mean, you must ask it of yourselves. Or how can I keep my marriage alive? I, 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 have, I feel like I have a pretty good marriage, but I mean, it's still a practice. What keeps it juicy and alive and filled with caring and feeling and growth and not, you know just getting through the errands and keeping the refrigerator stocked and taking the kid to school and stuff like that. You know what I mean, how it can turn into that? No, someone said, I can't imagine. (laughs) Or I look around and I see the tremendous degree of addiction in our society, which we've talked about in this class, and the tremendous degree of fear Fear of the Russians or fear of the Democrats or fear of the Republicans. Or in a lot of cases, fear of feeling, fear of emotions, fear of intimacy. Because we didn't get nourished in the right way often as children. And tremendous grief. Remember last week when I asked how many people were working with some major loss or grief and half the hands in the room went up? How can we create some alternatives in our society so we start to raise healthier children who aren't so prone to need and addiction? What do we do, or what haven't we done? And I don't know the answer to that. And I wonder for my child, as well as the kids in the preschool where I help teach because we're in a cooperative preschool. How can I keep my own sitting practice from becoming dry or idealistic or rote? Or how can I use it in a way that doesn't stop my own grief? Because my own grief is very deep. My own tears its taken a long time to learn to cry somewhat, and there's a lot more tears in there that still don't come out. How can I keep... This practice can get dry if it's used in the wrong way. How can I keep my heart really connected to it, alive? And it's a deep question for everybody. How do we deal with loss and change and grief in our lives? And practice can be used to avoid it, to kind of rise above it. It can also be used to really enter into it with one's heart and one's wisdom. These are not easy questions. And I look at them in my own practice in life, and I invite you to look at your own questions. I remember Krishnamurti giving a talk. You know, and He's the man who speaks quintessentially about questioning. Question authority. Don't take it on someone else's word. The Buddhas or Krishnamurtis or Jesus or anybody. Look and find what's true. Don't believe the society. The society is mad. The society is crazy. Look for something else. So he gave one of his marvelous talks one day like this, and he was talking about death and all kinds of things in his amazing way. And he went on for a couple of hours, an hour and a half anyway. And finally he said, well, I think that's enough. Should I go on? And everyone said, yes, please, please go on, because he's such a marvelous teacher. And he said, have you been listening? And they said, yes, yes. He said, well, aren't you tired? And they said, no, no, please go on. And he said, well, if you were really listening, you'd be
1: tired.
0: (laughs) And they all went, oh, dear, I guess I wasn't really listening. It's hard, actually, the kind of questions, whether it's about driving around and using Persian Gulf oil or looking at the way we raise children in the society in circumstances where the parents and the community aren't raising them uh, with them in the ways that used to happen in villages or... Or looking at our own spiritual life and what it is that we need to cultivate. These are really hard questions. And whether we're actually doing it or kind of just going through the motions. I often ask people in this class, in these talks, what you value. Are you living from your values, from your heart, from your life? Or are you just kind of sheeping it, you know, following the rest of the herd around. The Buddha, in his teachings, suggested that we ask in the same way. He suggested even that we measure our lives. A very dangerous thing to do, mind you, but nevertheless. Not in coffee spoons, as T.S. Eliot would have said, but he gave a kind of measure. He said, if you look at your life and your heart and your spiritual practice and you want to understand whether it's working, whether you're growing, he said, look to see if there is a diminishment of fear and addiction and greed and hatred and if there's a coming to terms with and a greater understanding of grief and sorrow and fear and greed. And if there is, that's the right direction. And look to see if on the other side there is a gradual development in your own way of knowing what is true for yourself no matter what anyone says. Of kindness and patience. Of gratitude. Of wisdom. Understanding. Wisdom might be the wisdom to just say, I don't know. And if those are growing in you, it's working. So you've got to ask yourself, is this a good practice for you? I don't know. What do you want from it? And what would it take on your part? What do you have to give? What seeds must you plant to bring that forth from your being and your heart? Is it likely to work? What do you really want to ask or know in your spiritual life? And what would allow your eyes to become those eyes of wisdom, those eyes of love and service that you see in all those wonderful pictures of Buddhas and saints and bodhisattvas and so forth? They're all really nice ideals. But what would it be like to look out from those eyes of kindness? What would you have to question? And what would you have to face in your life and in this society, in the way that we all live together? What would we have to face jointly? What would we have to let go of? What hard questions would have to be asked so that you and I and everybody who so chooses could live from a place of freedom in the heart and of real truth and real understanding. I think I probably set myself up for some questions tonight. (laughs) I'd like to actually ask you we start, whatever questions or dialogue or discussion we begin, more than asking me questions, and I'm willing to answer them, I'm not just trying to put that off, but I'd like to hear from people, what are the questions that are hard for you, or what are you asking, or what do you need to look into in your life, in your spiritual practice? I'd be interested to know Please. And you hit him? Yeah. Thank you, I, mean, I think other people can relate to your story. And it's a very deep question about, you can sit and yoga, do your yoga and be quiet, and then you go out and some stimulus comes and then boom, it's, it's all gone. What is it that makes us get angry? What is that in there that we believe about ourselves or the world? Or what is it that's held in there? You talked about it as, a, as the wounded child in some way. What is the pain or the hurt or the fear that arises that creates that reaction? And what would you or other people know? what would we need to question or discover even more deeply or accept or forgive or find in ourselves so that we were less automatically reactive to that or other situations? Not asking you for an answer this time, but just raising it as that question that you asked. What do we need to understand? that pain is very hard to feel and to take. It's much easier to react than to let ourselves feel the pain that we all have. But that's a place where compassion grows. That's the the ground, the, the soil, the garden of real compassion. Thank you. like the seasons to stop. stop. superego sense of sitting and having some ideal, I'll sit still and I'll be kind and I'll be patient and whatever, in many ways that is probably a necessary, although not always pleasant, initial part of practice. And one of the first cycles of wisdom that can grow for people in this or other kinds of good practice is to realize that that is just a voice in mind and to begin to learn hear that without believing it or getting caught in it and instead find the place that can sit and listen to the sorrows and the pain and the desires and the child and the adult and all those different voices without judgment just listen to learn and to understand Mm -hmm. rather than to try to rectify and correct and discipline and it's a very important point you make and it's one of the first Sometimes it can take a while, but it's one of the first critical pieces of wisdom that will then allow practice to go deeper. So I appreciate that you have you ever tried it? Uh huh. At at what kind of retreats? At Vipassana retreats?
1: Uh
0: huh. I don't know about the kind. I don't know about the kinds of retreats that... I don't know about the kinds of retreats you've done, I couldn't say that. But I know that for the kinds of retreats that I've been involved with, um, we make as a foundation and a basis for practice a couple of qualities. First is of loving kindness and kindness, and we start with that as a practice. Which, which is not so judging. So you're not sitting there trying to make something happen, but rather trying to learn the very art that you're asking about of relating to what arises without the judgment. Um, and I could go on. Right now it might not be so useful. But I think that the question you raise is a really important one. How does one learn to do a spiritual practice in a non-gaining, non uh harmful way. And it can be done. I assure you that it can be. And it's not so easy initially. It takes takes some practice, but it's really possible. And it's a wonderful question that you ask. How many people in this room work with a lot of judgment and lack of kindness toward themselves in their practice? Three quarters easily, and that shows the importance. And in some way the whole maybe the whole first half, if not the entire path of practice, has to do with learning in a deep way, self-acceptance and kindness. So I appreciate Of a, a righteous and skillful answer.
1: Right?
0: Maybe there is. Yeah. What I hear as I listen to you is the is the pain of it. How, how many other people see the pain in that? I mean, and you hear stuff. This is our country, and this is what's representing us and directing us as a nation, and and with all the in some ways fortunate and probably more unfortunate power that we have in the world, this is what directs it. Very deep. And the question is how do you respond to that pain to that to the lies and deception? That's a very deep question. And that if you read and and look at the life of people like Gandhi, in some sense that was the, the struggle of their whole life. And I'm not saying that in some simple answer. But it was really a struggle with how to deal with that and and stay connected with It's a good question, where to go in in doing service that you really would grow from. There certainly are enough difficulties around to find. I mean, there are a lot of arenas, whether it's Central America or homeless people on the streets or or mental hospitals or whatever. For some people, it might be that the, the greatest difficulties are also at home with their spouse or their lover or their children or their things in their neighborhood. That's a wonderful question. Sometimes when that kind of question is asked also, you think, well, what would be the best place? And there isn't the best place. There's 20 best places, and what really matters is you pick one of them and go and put yourself on the line and work with what comes up. And I, I certainly wish you well in that. Please, Evelyn.
1: So you register voters. Mm -hmm. Thank you, (laughs) right on.
0: We should stop, there are a few announcements and I want to end it, mine. Um, I asked you a lot more questions than you got a chance to ask back or answer or whatever. I do hope in some way that you will take to heart that process of questioning itself and really look at your life and at this society and the way that we live and, and our earth and look at what it would take for you to live most genuinely and most truly what you have to face and live from and, and understand. Because I, I believe that's what can save our Earth as well, is when an individual person, each one or a number, is willing to ask and look in that way.